This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. This thing's not seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Antonio Sison. He's an associate professor of systematic theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, Illinois. He's the author of several books, including World Cinema, Theology and the Human, and Screening Skillabex, Theology and Third World Cinema in Dialogue. In addition to writing about film, Sison is also a filmmaker himself. His theological art film, Ichthus, was screened at film festivals in 2006. Antonio Sison is the author of a recent book, The Sacred Foodways of Film, Theological Servings in 11 Food Films. Professor Antonio Sison, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to start by asking you a little bit about your background. You were raised in the Philippines, and I wonder mm-hmm. if we could start with just talking about how food is viewed in Filipino culture and how growing up in this culture affected the way that you think about eating, cooking, and community. Well, food is central in Philippine culture. I I was very blessed to have a mother who's from a region in the Philippines where food is very important and very central. They're known to be the best cooks in the Philippines. It's uh, the province of Pampanga is where she comes from. And cooking for her is very, it's second nature. And it's not a chore. It's more of an expression of who she is and her love for family. And so food was just present everywhere, I guess, and all the time. And what makes it very Filipino is that it's embedded in certain values that have something to do with uh, community and uh, belonging and family. Tell me a little bit about those values. So when you say it's embedded in certain values of community and family, like make that concrete for us. Like, What does that look like in the process of preparing and presenting food? How do we see those values reflected? Well, first of all, I don't know if you've ever been to a Filipino family gathering. I have not. Well, it's huge. (laughs) It's huge in terms of numbers, and it's huge in terms of the servings of food. Like, food is literally overflowing in gatherings. And so just by looking at that, even in, in its most simplest sort of form, you'll see that the intention of serving food at the table is to enrich a community, and in this case, an extended family. Our gatherings in the Philippines are normally, uh, you know, the gathering of the extended family of grandma, nieces and nephews running around, (laughs) aunts and uncles, and then friends who are also considered extended family. Like everyone's an aunt and an uncle coming together at the table. And uh, the expectation is that after the gathering, they also bring back food with them. They know doggy bag culture (laughs) in a way. So 
that's why there's an overflow of food. So I was shocked when one of my first experiences in the United States and, and the Netherlands was that I attended a party where there was hardly any food, at least from my my perspective. It's like, this is a party? <laughs> because where I come from, uh, food is, it, it's an expression of how abundantly blessed one is. And regardless of whether you're poor or rich, you give everything in a, like, it's a kind of radical hospitality. Now, in here in Chicago, there are buses, and when you watch the buses, they will sometimes have advertisements on them. And one of the advertisements that I've seen lately is an advertisement about food waste and that uh, the average American wastes about 200 pounds of food a year. What I'm hearing and what you're saying is that, you know, here we have food waste because we have a very individualist kind of culture where we think we prepare food for ourselves and we don't share it with anyone else. What I'm hearing about Filipino culture is that the, the mindset would be exactly the same. The notion of food waste would almost be antithetical to what you're talking about. Is that a fair characterization? Uh, more or less, more or less. Of course, you know that there are always exceptions everywhere, but generally speaking, the whole sort of like attitude of sharing is very inherent in my culture, in the Filipino culture. And I still carry that, even though I'm a merry mix-up, it's like having lived in Europe for four years and having been, uh, you know, out of my country for like 14 years. Uh, when, I, when I hang out with a friend, uh, I don't bring one snack, I bring two snacks because the idea is for me to share with my friend, whatever I have. And at first, my friends freaked out. It's like, you brought that for me? I'm almost kind of a, <laughs> they don't get it. It's like, you're some kind of a weirdo. <laughs> so I had to explain to them, but it's second nature. Let me be who I am. And who I am is Filipino. And being a Filipino means sharing is just a natural thing. It's a communitarian, a socio-centric culture, socio-centrically oriented culture. One of the ways in which Filipinos normally welcome others is to say, kaina which means, let's eat. <laughs> or, or a common greeting would be, uh, have you eaten? Have you eaten? Have you eaten? That, that's a very common, uh, you know, greeting rather than welcome. Welcome to my house. It's like the, the first question is, yeah, have you eaten? <laughs> what I'm hearing in that is there is not a sense of scarcity in that, but rather a sense of abundance. There's a sense Correct. that there's going to be enough for everyone mm-hmm. and more to share. Right. In fact, to a fault, some poor families get into debt just so they can serve their guest their best. Uh, the idea is to, to serve the best, you know, at your table, and that's directly proportional to your hospitality and your care for the people who you invite. You're telling me that in Filipino culture, people will routinely or will sometimes go into debt to make sure that their guests have enough, whereas here in America, we see examples of people going into debt to make sure that they get their own interests met. Here, People are going into debt to make sure that other people's interests are met. But the, the core value to that is called pagmamagandang um, loob. It means that um, yeah, the way you treat another is coming from your heart of hearts. And another, another value is pakikisama, which really means heartfelt solidarity, that we're, we're really a family and we don't treat family members with you know, a computation of how much I've spent on you. If for a normal Filipino mindset, that's very insulting. It's like, oh, I already spent like five bucks on you. Next time, <laughs> it's your turn. <laughs> we don't kind of count. It's not, it's not very normal or natural. Uh, again, generalizations, there are exceptions for sure. Would you characterize the culture in the Philippines as being a deeply religious culture or a moderately religious culture? It's deeply religious. And, and can you characterize that religion for our listeners that are unfamiliar with Filipino culture? It's about 90% Catholic 
and I mean Catholico Cerrado. It means, uh, you know, really devout Catholics. Uh, it's very common to see in Manila, for example, um, churches uh, bursting at the seams with devotees, you know, young and old. Literally outside the church, people are congregated. And, uh, you know, when it's time to kneel, everyone kneels, uh, even though you're in the pavement of a street outside, right outside the church. Yeah, that's why when Pope Francis and the previous popes have visited the Philippines, you know, it was like, this is here, people. <laughs> Everyone is like into it. There were millions who gathered for Pope Francis in his last visit. Catholicism is deeply ingrained. I'm wondering to what extent you see an overlap between the Catholic heritage and the intense devotion to this kind of food culture and this culture of abundance. Is there an overlap there or are these two things that are just developing parallel to one another? Certainly there are overlaps. For example, in the culture... One common image in the culture is hapag kainan. It means that the food is laid out on the table and you almost like share food from the same plate. There are Eucharistic currents right there in the whole idea of gathering. Plus, the idea of food as memory also connects very well with Catholicism, the idea that you know, in, in, in Scripture, we talk about remembrance in the Eucharistic pericopes in the Gospel. Those connect very well with Filipino culture. It's a culture where the generations prior to you have an honored seat at the table. We value our elders, and the memories of our elders uh, nourish our present. Those linkages between past, present, and future surrounding a table of plenty of abundance is very Eucharistic. So there are links like that that are worth exploring for sure. A moment ago, you said that food was memory. And I'm just wondering kind of if you could expand on that. What do you mean food is memory? That food, precisely because food is embedded within experience. Those experiences are very vital for a person because food is sustenance. The events surrounding your eating and your food practices are deeply ingrained in you, and it's passed on from one generation to another. And so when you eat something, you're, it, it opens up a, port, a time-traveling portal, the way I have put it in the book. I have a dear friend, Father Bruce Cinquedrani, who's a priest down in Memphis, Tennessee, and one of the ways that Father Bruce would tell me about his family is that he'd cook for me or he'd share food with me. He still has his mother's pots because he comes from a long line of Italian cooks, and so he's, this is part of how he shares who he is. It's, I think Italian is key there. <laughs> <laughs> but just as you're saying, cooking and the sharing not just of the food itself, but also of the very tools to prepare the food. And it, I, I imagine that there are similar things that you could find in your own mother's kitchen, pots and pans that have not only the food that was prepared in them, but the memory of, of the pots themselves may have things for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, my mother has a beautiful kitchen. It's very rustic. And she loves antiques. So even right there, you have connections like that. But definitely, most definitely. And another thing, in a more, I guess, in a less concrete, tangible way, my mother never cooks from a cookbook. She, uh, the, the dishes she knows how to cook are inscribed, as I described it in my book, in the cookbook of her memory. And these are dishes that she had observed her mother cooking, where she participated as a young girl and had acquired by assimilation. I wish I had that talent of not cooking from a cookbook. She, she really knows how to do it very intuitively. And her version of sinigang, for example, is one, one dish I, I mentioned in my book. I cook sinigang here. Of course, ingredients are different. You have to adapt. <laughs> but 
her sinigang is just so different from mine because uh, there's a certain intuitive and artistic current in cooking that's not a formula. That's something acquired from one generation to another. And I think that, uh, you know, food heritage and even ingredients, it's like heirloom recipes, heirloom ingredients also find their way into the pot and get passed on from one generation to another. So I think that memory uh, works on many levels. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Antonio Sison, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. He's written several books exploring the theology found in contemporary cinema, including his recent book, The Sacred Food Ways of Film. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Antonio Sison, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. He's written several books exploring the theology found in contemporary cinema, including his recent book, The Sacred Food Ways of Film. What are some examples of food that we can find in the Bible when we see food being used not just to feed people, but food being used theologically? I'll focus on one, uh, the miracle of the five loaves and two fish. There's so many profound levels. For me personally, um, in my context and in the the lens of, uh, let's just say, a typical Filipino person of faith, not only does it show that God is uh, super abundant, that God is um, generously wishes that everyone, there would be no one who would remain hungry, and that God is concerned with your most concrete needs, that's one and the other piece too. It's it's very eschatological. It also pictures an alternative reality where everyone will be filled, and I mean being filled on every level. Although we don't experience this in the here and now, it's here but not yet. Uh, that we do see already the reign of God bringing about abundance um, if you know where to look and if you know how to count your blessings. By the way, the five loaves and two fish was uh, really the core theme of my film that I had made, Ictus, um, where I went to a poor fishing village in my my father's hometown in, in the north of the Philippines. And I, I explored how this can be enculturated and how the, the people themselves have uh, lived out a spirituality that connects very well with that particular uh, pericope. So, yeah, there are many ways of looking at it. That's just one. You, you, we know, everyone knows that scriptural verse that says, taste and see the goodness of the Lord. The Eucharistic pericopes are everywhere in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Manna from heaven. <laughs> Give us this day our daily manna. <laughs> and many others. Uh, you know, and even that infamous fruit that Eve, Adam and Eve ate. So it's like food is from Genesis to, <laughs> to Revelation. Uh, I think food figures very prominently in Scripture. Well, let's take a moment and talk about this film, Ichthus. Uh, You made this in the early 2000s. I think that it was finished and shown at festivals in 2006. Yes. So this was a chance for you yourself to turn from commenting on films to actually make a film. 
So you wrote and directed and filmed this short piece, yes? Mm-hmm. And the title is Ichthus. And for our listeners who are unfamiliar with, with Greek, what does Ichthus mean, both in terms of its, its straight meaning, but also there's a deeper symbolic meaning there as well? Yeah, there, they, um, this was a, a code used by the early Christians um, to, to avoid persecution. It's what you see as like the symbol of the fish that you see in bumper stickers <laughs> in Christian circles. But I use Ictus in, a, in a, I guess, in another sense that hidden behind the Filipino search for daily bread is a God who is offering uh, generosity and, and fulfillment through food and through love. In my experience, films are best understood when you watch them rather than when you're describing them, <laughs> especially if you're the one who made the film. <laughs> so, by the way, the, uh, this is a free plug, but the film is available on Vimeo. All I have to do is to Google uh, Ictus and the name Tonsi Son. That's my sort of like artist name. <laughs> and, and we'll also be happy to put a, a link to it in the show notes for, for this episode awesome. as well. Awesome. So you'd spend part of the time in your book, The Sacred Food Ways of Film, talking about this short film that you produced, Ichthus. And one of the things that you bring out in the film and your discussion of it in your new book, you play with the idea of a particular type of fish, the, and I may pronounce this wrong, the Kera Kere Dios, which is translated idiomatically in, in Filipino as God's leftovers. That's right. And I want to sort of ask you a little bit about that, because we've been talking about abundance, we've been talking about the loaves and fishes, we've been talking about a God who wants to make sure that no one goes hungry. Tell us a little bit about how this fish plays into Filipino culture and how this fish was sort of inspirational to the way that you were thinking about the film. Mm-hmm. The name, actually, not bad with, with your pronunciation, <laughs> but it's, it's called Karakaray Dios. This name is not in the language, uh, the national language of the Philippines. This is a um, one of the few languages uh, of the Philippines called Pangasinan, which is the language of that particular province where my dad comes from. Caracaray Dios is um, really a, a variety of flatfish, like flounder and... You mentioned um, like tongue sole. Yeah, tongue yeah. sole. Tongue sole would be the English name for it. Halibut. Halibut is also... Uh, in the flatfish family. But it's curious because if you look at the morphology of this fish, it's like one side has both eyes on it and the other side is like flat nothing. <laughs> one day when I was walking by the beach, the beach was very important for my family. We used to live in a coastal area. And uh, I was walking by the beach and I stepped on a, a mound on the sand and uh, lo and behold, it was uh, like a juvenile flatfish, a juvenile caracaraidios. So it's like jumping and skipping and I just noticed that it looked strange. I mean, Two eyes on one side. I mean, what kind of a mutant is that? So I asked my dad what it was, and he said, Karakarayos, it means, uh, you know, the people believe here that in the uh, the multiplication of the five loaves and two fish, what Jesus did was that he distributed half of the fish and multiplied that, but the other half he let go to the sea because he had poor people in mind. The poor poor generations in mind should have something to eat. So it was a multiplication in, in a real sense of the word. And it was so rich because this is coming from, and not to mean this in a pejorative way, it, it's a Christology of the inarticulate, to borrow the title of a book from a Filipino theologian. It just means that from people who are not schooled in, you know, they're not like snooty professionals like you and I. <laughs> There's just a simple lived faith, but nonetheless a rich and, in fact, very eloquent sort of faith. And this is how they had described the fish. So... No one told them that this was uh, that they should name it in a Christian way, but that's what they did. It's a very organic way of naming it, but it also shows you the kind of like blending of culture and faith in the Philippines, uh, specifically for this particular locality. 
from there, the image of Karakarai just stuck in my mind. You know, this happened when I was like, what, 10 years old? <laughs> I won't tell you <laughs> how many years that took, but it stayed in my mind and just, it, I, I really have an artistic sensibility and I have been writing films and uh, until Ictus, um, I was uh, really a screenwriter. I did write a couple of screenplays, one of which was produced as a film in the Philippines, but this germ of an idea developed. And uh, so I went back. I went back to that beach. I mingled with the people. And from the lens now of a theologian, I also retold the story from their perspective, an enculturated version of uh, The Five Lobes and the Two Fish. So it's a, it means a lot to me, this film. It's, it's really an expression of my own growing up years and the country I come from. It makes me think of Ernesto Cardinal and the Gospel in Salentaname, where he went and he talked to peasant farmers, and they would read the Gospels together. And instead of him giving them the theological read from his schooling, he just listened and took notes about how they read it. And it sounds like a similar motion here where the people are saying, well, we we see this story from the Gospels, and it's beautiful what you just said, that Christ was thinking not just of the people that were there listening to him in the moment, but were thinking of the future the, the generations and the poor who would also have need to be fed as they were as they were listening to these stories. Absolutely. And what also struck me was that usually in theology, the interlocutors are the professionals. But here, the people with their lived faith become the hermeneutes of Scripture. Uh, I like it because if you look at it also from a post-colonial perspective, it also means that because, you know, Christianity and colonization came hand in hand in the Philippines, very similar to the way in which Christianity came to Latin America. Of course, you bear the stigmata of your colonial collective trauma, so to speak. A, a good part of your identity as a culture was lost there. Uh, it was vanquished during the colonization. For example, we had our own written language. We had our own alphabet that was stamped out when the Spaniards came in. Thank you, friars. <laughs> no, no, I have friar friends, and but this is just a you know accidents of history, maybe. But uh, so a lot of our cultural identity needs to be recovered and rediscovered and reowned, and the process of enculturation is important for us. And um, in this case, the people are allowed to speak their own voice based on their own experience in the language that means something for them. And in the language of new parables, as Pope Francis would put it, uh, would also find meaning in day-to-day realities and expressed in the power of story and symbol. How did your film analysis and film criticism shift and change as a result of being in the process of making a film yourself? That's a good question, and not not many people ask that question. This was like literally a one-person production I called it my sub-zero budget project. I had no money. The, the total price of this, cost of this film was $75. Uh, I didn't even have a camera when I conceptualized this. You know, the, the funny story is that I was in religious formation at that time in Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> From Dayton, Ohio, I, I conceptualized something that had to do with the Philippines. Can you imagine that on the other shore? But we, there was a, like an appliance store next to our house. And I saw this, like, dinky old camera, like the, the kind of camera you use for a grandmother's reunion, you know, not, not for anything artsy. <laughs> but I didn't have money, being in formation and all. So, but every day on my way to ministry, I passed by this appliance store and looking at this camera, I was like, my, in, in my wish, it topped my wish list. And I was wondering when I was going to get it until finally the store guy said, it's 40% off. If you don't get it now, you'll never get it. 
So I got it and that started the process. One of the things that helped me is that it made me more merciful in my criticism of film because I know what it takes to make a film, especially if you are under budget. On the other hand, you also appreciate those who don't have money to make a film because they're really tapping into, you know, the God of the new creation that they are almost creating something out of nothing. So the creative act itself is a spirituality. For me, making this film was so deeply spiritual. It, it made me discover the beauty of this God who was far more beautiful than what I'd imagined this God to be. And for me, as a, an artist and theologian, that, that was very life-changing. I, I have more respect for low-budget films after that, especially those coming from uh, the third world. There are many films coming from the other, the other shore, if I can put it that way that are worth looking into. Some of them have figured into my, my book. And um, yeah, my, my part of my mission too is to make people aware that there's more. There's more than Hollywood fair out there. The world has gotten smaller and there's almost like no excuse. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Antonio Sison. He's Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. He's written several books exploring the theology found in contemporary cinema, including his recent book, The Sacred Foodways of Film. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Antonio Sison, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He's written several books exploring the theology found in contemporary cinema, including his recent book, The Sacred Food Ways of Film. So one of the films that you talk about in your book, The Sacred Food Ways of Film, is a film called The Hundred Foot Journey. And I was struck by the relationship there in your description of this film. You talk about Indian culture and French culture sort of being in contrast as we look at this film. But that made me think both about the lingering lines between cuisines and colonialism mm -hmm. and the notions of how food is both a way for people to rally towards their memory of their culture but also ways in which cultures are appropriated and expropriated by colonizers. And I, I just want to sort of put that out there and, and, and ask, first of all, how you think about food when you see two cultures coming together and there's a power differential between those two cultures. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that film because that's a good film to, to look into uh, for this particular theme. In the film... You have French cuisine, which is the gold standard for what is excellent in, in culinary culture, at least from the Western perspective. So these are like Michelin stars and those yeah, sorts of things. Yeah, the Michelin stars are, you know, for those who are not acquainted, uh, if you get a one star, you know, that Michelin book where they rate restaurants and many others. French restaurants die, or every restaurant die, <laughs> dies to get one, at least one star. One star means you're a cut above. Two stars means you're superb, excellent, and three stars means uh, you serve food for the gods. Chicago has like four restaurants who have, uh, I'm not sure how many stars, but they're Michelin-starred restaurants. In the film, a French Michelin-starred restaurant is right across an immigrant-built restaurant serving Indian food. Indian food, FYI, is a 5,000-year-old cuisine. French cuisine started in the medieval period. 
So it's like when the family asserts their culture, and especially the father figure in the film who owns the restaurant, he said, uh, "But yeah, but do they serve a, a chicken tikka in that restaurant? <laughs> you know, uh, do they have your mother's spices in that restaurant? You know, he was like going back to the cultural roots of all this and how meaningful all these dishes they're going to serve uh, to their culture and to their identity. But widening the aperture uh, just in general." I think there's a lot there, uh, especially when uh, there's a tendency to sort of like ridicule other cuisines just because they're different. Sort of like attitude of othering is when it gets a little, shall we say, yeah, it doesn't contribute to a communitarian uh, perspective on food. Uh, For example, just the openness to other cuisines. If the attitude is, ew, I ain't going to eat that. Uh, I'm a meat and taters person. Uh, I only eat cheesy mac. (laughs) And, uh, you know, God knows where those ingredients come from. But when you haven't really sampled that cuisine, I see sampling other dishes, other cuisines as an invitation for intercultural communion that even just one time to sample another's dish is honoring the people that they represent and the culture that they represent. I mentioned in a recent talk I gave that in Chicago, for example, Chicago is uh, considered as one of the the great foodie cities of the world. Just here in Hyde Park uh, on 55th Street, you have three Thai restaurants within a few feet of each other. Like, yeah, 100-foot journey. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I mean, not to sample any of them would be almost criminal. (laughs) Even just once, once to try out Sinigang, if you can find it, or Thai Tom Yam, or Pad uh, Sen. I mean, when you sample it, it enriches you because it ex- expands your cultural palette, but at the same time, it honors your host culture. So, yeah, it's an invitation. And plus, because we're very, uh, a Christian perspective lends itself to uh, a kind of like a more deeply rooted sharing in, in a perspective of the Eucharist. Uh, the foodie revolution can also be a Christian revolution if we know where to look and if we have the slightest curiosity and sense of adventure and uh, and solidarity. I think it's a, it's a beautiful moment. You know, I, I really think that that is why we have to pay attention uh, because this is also our moment. It's a very Christian thing to associate what's meaningful for you around the table. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Antonio Sison, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. He's written several books exploring the theology found in contemporary cinema, including his recent book, The Sacred Food Ways of Film. So I want to come back to the notion of film criticism, because in your book, The Sacred Food Ways of Film, you look at a film called A Simple Life, and you note as you're discussing that film that it was panned in some ways by several critics, including longtime Chicago film critic Roger Ebert. And that you note that Ebert found certain aspects of the film wanting. Those were Ebert's words. Then you go on to critique Ebert's critique in some ways and push back against it and say maybe you didn't look at it as deeply and as fully as you should have. And I I just want to think about that interchange in terms of what it means to comment on culture and particularly to comment on film culture. What is it like, first of all, since you've made art and you've commented on art, what is it like to to be a, a cultural critic? And secondly, what is it like when cultural criticism goes wrong, for example, in Ebert's example? 
Well, first of all, I wouldn't say that one um, one perspective might be wrong and mine might be the correct one. But rather, uh, it's it's not really an either or, but a both and. Uh, when we hold perspectives in dialectic, or in other words, in a conversational, dialogical way, then you have a richer view. It's like turning the prism one way so that you see a facet of it and turning the prism another way and you see another facet of it. Although I am a believer that there's a contribution made by native informants, or at least those who are closer, more proximate to the culture at question. Uh, that's a perspective that should not be drowned, drowned out because it's, it's a perspective that is uh, a deeper focus, if I were to say that. Um, and yeah, in this case, um, Ebert is coming from a very specific perspective. Um, he has a voice, though, because he's Roger Ebert. And I have to give him credit. He's, a, he's an excellent... I'm a fan of, of Roger Ebert, the late Roger Ebert, shall we say. Um, but there's not one dogmatic interpretation of a film. A, f a film is polysemic. It's multi-layered. It has a number of symbols that sort of like collectively form its matrix of meaning-making. And, uh, and because of that, it invites also uh, polyvalence. Uh, it invites various perspectives. And that's what makes a film, uh, film review, a, f a cultural review, an exciting field Precisely because there's a, a plurality of voices around here. So I wouldn't say there's one dogmatic God voice. Uh, there are many voices. But just don't drown out a native informant's voice or a voice that is proximate to the cultural product we're describing or reviewing. Because I think that would be, uh, aside from unfair, there's a justice issue there. Mm -hmm. Well, and this, there's a, there's a follow-up question that just is something that is, is of personal interest. And... In, in this current book, The Sacred Food Ways of Film, you look at several films. In your other books, you've also looked at several films. So you take this very seriously. Uh, and, you, and you watch a lot of films. You, you digest a lot of cinema. Can you, for our listeners or for me, since I'm the one interested in this, can you give an example of a film that is bad, in your opinion, but is still an important film to watch or a worthwhile film to watch? Can we start with me naming a good film? Sure. <laughs> One of the films that I really appreciate and uh, that has sort of like been part of my journey um, in, in, in not just in reviewing films, but also in my own spiritual journey is Babette's Feast. Babette's Feast is uh, the story of uh, a Puritan community that's ultra conservative um, and who unknowingly has for a housekeeper uh, the greatest culinary genius of France. So one day she wins the lottery and blows all of her savings uh, into this exquisite French meal. And uh, though the community swore that they will not acknowledge their senses, there's just like a duality of body and spirit here, uh, they won't acknowledge their sensual experience of the food. Uh, slowly, little by little, they get transformed as they partake of this, this wonderful meal. So, you know, and I like it not just because it invites reflection on Eucharist, on what it means to share a table and to acknowledge the abundance of God and God's blessings um, and, and to overcome that body and soul dualism. Um, it also is a very subtle film. It invites your participation. It presents you with a, you know symbols and uh, it's there's a quietness about the film that makes it almost like a like a filmic parable. And for that, you know, I like it because the film doesn't impose on me. It invites me uh, 
in a sense, uh, virtually to the table, and and as a co-guest in in this uh, uninvited guest, not not at least not officially invited. And the thing is that Pope Francis also considers this film as one of his best, and many religious thinkers and and film enthusiasts also consider this as one of the best films ever made. And I agree. And for those reasons that I mentioned, it's a film as locus theologicus, a site of theological insight. And just sheer, in, from the point of view of filmmaking, also of an effortless, beautifully realized film. Um, a, a bad film for me is a film that would impose its meaning because it kind of hammers the meaning on you and it spells out everything so that it's very little for you to reflect upon. It's like everything is spelled out. It's like it's almost like you have subtitles that says, "Did you get that? Did you get that?" I think it's an insult to the audience. It's an you underestimate uh, the audience power of participation as also part of the filmmaking process. The reception is just as important as the product, as the film itself. And um, a film that would like hammer its point is uh, one I would consider one of the. Uh, sort of like my standards of what would be a bad film. Um, right now, unfortunately, I, nothing comes to mind. Um, by virtue of films being bad, I, they're not very memorable. So <laughs> maybe I can be excused from naming a bad film. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Antonio Sison. He's Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He's written several books exploring the theology found in contemporary cinema, including his recent book, The Sacred Foodways of Film. We'll be back in a moment. Hey there, everybody. If you've been following my exploits, you realize that I have a great interest in faith and science issues. And that's why I'm happy to tell you about uh, some new friends that I've made, the Zygon Center for Religion and Science at Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. Now, why I'm excited about these folks is because every every semester— in the fall and the spring, they put on what they call an advanced discussion series or an advanced seminar, and they take some topic that is important in the world of science, and they put it through a lens where they bring both scientists and theologians and New Testament people and people that talk about the various aspects of religion to talk about that subject. And so this fall, they're going to be doing a series on cancer. I know, heavy subject, but Um, They're going to look at cancer from all different angles. Some of those angles are going to be scientific, and they're going to bring in cutting-edge theologians and religious thinkers to also talk about it. I'm very excited about it. I hope that if you're in the Chicago area, you feel free to stop by. It's on Monday nights from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago down here in my neighborhood in Hyde Park. That's the Zygon Center for Religion and Science. You really should check them out. They are awesome. Now, to find out more, go online to zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Antonio Sison, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. He's written several books exploring the theology found in contemporary cinema, including his recent book, The Sacred Foodways of Film. Early in the book, The Sacred Foodways of Film, you look at the film Into the Wild. And for our listeners unfamiliar with the film, could you just give us a quick snapshot of the plot? Mm-hmm. Well, it's about a, a new graduate who's doing excellently in his, you know, what his parents envisioned to be an uh, academic pathway to success. Uh, but he has decided to turn, turn his back to the expectations of the world, shall we say, and his parents and launch into this journey to nowhere, to uh, an open-ended journey where he's allowed to, to unburden 
and unlearn what he has acquired through formal studies and also his upbringing. It's a road movie then. It, it traces the journey of this young man. It's a, a powerful film in the sense that it brings to the screen a real-life story of idealism and dreaming and wanting a world that is better, that is uh, uh, unfettered by expectations. Expectation that after graduation, you go on to be uh, a big moneymaker in your career of choice. And, and you establish your own family. There are conventions like that that this, this guy uh, wants to negate and sets out in this huge adventure. It's, uh, it's, it's wonderful until that point. But it reaches a point when he's so isolated from the matrix of relationships that are supposed to sustain him. Uh, so that in the end, spoilers alert, <laughs> in the end, it backfires. That he realizes that life becomes meaningful when it is shared. And there are shots in the film that I remember where he's all alone in the desert suffering because he, couldn't, he was foraging for food and he couldn't find enough sustenance. And then you have shots of his family, you know, gather around the table. And, and it's very palpable that they, they know that there's a void in the dinner ta- at the dinner table. Yeah, the link between um, eating and a community and your family is drawn out here. I put this in the chapter on hunger. Um, that here a lack of food is also directly proportional to a lack of relationality. We're in a culture where we're so busy that food really isn't something we pay attention to. It's like we grab, uh, for example, if I'm in a rush, I just grab uh, leftovers from, from yesterday and I eat it while I'm, you know, multitasking. I'm looking at my online course while eating. It's like, and then, you know, a meal is passed and I didn't even remember what that was about. You know, it made, meant nothing. It's, it's just like getting fuel for a car. Uh, and this film, yeah, reminds me of that, that a, a, a real meal uh, in its uh, full force of meaning and its richness is a meal experience in community. And I think that's an important piece we have to pay attention to nowadays. Films have been around for a little bit more than a century. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and very early on, America centralized film production around Hollywood, and Hollywood became a machine that basically pushed media out to the world. Hollywood is Holly World. <laughs> that was said in an, one of the Oscar uh, awards nights. Yeah, but but at the same time, there's there's a whole other world out there. Yeah, and definitely. and almost as long as there has been film technology, that world has been pushing back against the narratives of of Hollywood. But a lot of times, filmmaking is a very capital-intensive process. It so is. To, to make a film, you've got to have a lot of money and you've got to have distribution. But over the past 20 years, that's really been shifting and changing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sort of asking you to, to think ahead to the future. How do you see the cinema from other shores, again, to use your phrase, uh, pushing back and, and changing our expectations and changing the way that we think about stories within American culture? Mm-hmm. It's an uphill battle because you're you're battling against you know a profit motive and uh, this whole industry, a uh, multi-billion-dollar industry, and um, but uh, that's precisely it's it's almost like a mission. Uh, the mission of filmmakers from elsewhere is to keep making films that that say something different that that would expose and bring other cultural perspectives to the table, and. Um, because, again, because of the many different platforms where you can view a film now, that becomes uh, more of a possibility now than years before. And you can see that now, actually, in, um, 
Well, film festivals are a way of doing it, although film festivals do target a very specific audience. I mean, film festivals are viewed as, you know, they're for the arty-farty people. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an uphill battle, but there are uh, impulses everywhere where opportunities, even for like small viewing uh, programs, and uh, there are alternative film festivals around here as well, and, and private viewing sessions uh, are ways in which, you know, you can actually view films from others, from other countries, from other cultures. And um, also, it's also audience sort of, it's predicated on the attitudes of audiences. Um, the more we recognize that the world is bigger and that there are many other perspectives that are worth looking into, as long as we nurture that curiosity and that, you know, as I said, a sense of adventure and, and to widen our horizons of just even just the tiniest bit, I think that we would seek out films that, uh, you know, that are beyond films as entertainment. Not to say that films that are created for entertainment are necessarily bad. I mean, I watch a lot of commercial films. Uh, I'm an X-Men fan. <laughs> if you want commercial, I'm, I'm raring to watch Justice League and Thor. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if I, I'm going to use food imagery, if you imagine this as your your diet, uh, you know, expand that diet. You can't just eat hamburgers for the rest of your life. You just can't eat McDonald's. You know, you just can't eat fries for the rest of your life. You know, every now and then, uh, why don't you just push the boundaries a little bit and welcome another dish? So if you have, I think if, if your, your plate, your viewing plate has variety and has healthy options, uh, I think that you would also turn out to be a more well-rounded and, uh, and um, well, educated in the, in the widest sense of the word, an educated person, a person who is informed about the world around us. And, and it, would, it would be a shame if you, know, if you do the opposite because we're in exciting times. There's so much cultural diffusion now because of social media, because of the increase in world travel. Um, we might as well soak it up, soak it in, and, uh, and experience uh, what other cultures have to offer. I think it's, uh, it makes life far more interesting and, um, and meaningful than being stuck uh, with just one dish in our entire life. <laughs> well, Antonio Sison, I really enjoyed the book. I learned a lot from it, and I've loved talking to you today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. We've been speaking today with Antonio Sison. He's Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, Illinois. He is the author of several books, including World Cinema, Theology and the Human, and Screening Skillebex, Theology and Third World Cinema in Dialogue. In addition to writing about film, Sison is also a filmmaker himself. His theological art film, Ichthus, was screened at film festivals in 2006. Antonio Sison is the author of a recent book, The Sacred Foodways of Film, Theological Servings in 11 Food Films. This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Adam Yaffe engineered the show. 
Kim Tron and David Dahl did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.